I now come to talk about the, the law in the New Testament. And it's immediately evident that we're coming to think about a very difficult theological matter. It's always easy to prove theological matters are, are difficult. You look at both ends of the scale and see what people have said. Jonathan Edwards said, there is perhaps no part of divinity with so much intricacy and wherein orthodox divines do so much differ as stating the precise agreement and differences between the two dispensations of Moses and Christ. And then you can go to the other end and John Wesley says, perhaps there are few subjects within the whole compass of religion so little understood as this. So, I'm not coming with terribly crisp answers to everything. Uh, I think there are many things I want to say that are quite definite, but there are others where inevitably there will be room for differences of opinion. What are we trying to do? We're trying basically to do justice to the radical shift, the change in epoch that comes into place not just with the coming of Christ, but with the completion of his work and the coming of the Spirit. And yet, while we're saying there is a major change, a major shift, we want at the same time to do justice to the fact that there are basic continuities. And in terms of the theme we're discussing today, that basic continuity can be seen in that the new covenant has as one of its aspects, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Jeremiah 31, 34, cited in Hebrews 8. The law still has a place in the new covenant. It's still in what one might call the the constitution and charter of the new covenant that's set up in Jeremiah 31. In what way then does the law function in the new covenant? I'd like to survey the evidence that can be found in the New Testament. We can't go through all of it. I just wish to look at certain key passages. Firstly, Jesus' attitude towards the law. Can we look first then at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20? This is in the public ministry of our Lord. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The key phrase there 
the end of verse 17, to fulfill. I came to fulfill. And there have been many attempts to understand this. Some have thought that to fulfill means to bring to an end. But that really doesn't do justice to the but. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. If what it means is I did not come to abolish, but to bring to an end, it's hardly a sharp contrast. It doesn't seem to work. If we look at the other usages of fulfill in the New Testament, there is the idea of bringing forward to completion. Fulfill is heightening progress. Frequently in Matthew's Gospel, you get the idea of prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Christ. The word that had been given, the message that had been revealed in old times, moves forward and upwards uh, to its, its culmination. And there are those who say that fulfill's got this idea of bring to an end by coming to a culmination. But the, the basic teaching of our Lord here is not, I've come to bring something to an end, stop, and bring in something else. Because he goes on and emphasizes the continuity of the commandments. Uh, he goes on and the, the whole thrust of verse 18 is, not one letter or stroke, jot or tittle, shall pass away from the law till all is accomplished. Some have thought that fulfill should be understood in terms of obey the law personally. And in a very real sense, Jesus did in that way fulfill the law, uh, that there was nothing in the Old Testament law that our Lord did not in his living uh, live up to. But that's not, well, that's true that Jesus did um, obey the law. He was made under the law and fulfilled all the law's demands. Uh, the, the passage in the, Beati- in the Sermon on the Mount isn't concerned with our Lord's own actions. He's rather looking at the way his disciples, his followers, should behave. And it's to in- it introduces a, a theme that's not really congruent to this passage uh, to talk about our Lord obeying it personally. It looks very much more as if fulfill has got this sense of I'm coming in continuity with the law to bring it forward, to move not against what's already been said, but to bring it forward to consummation. And that's really what Jesus himself seems to do in the following part of Matthew 5, where he corrects misunderstandings that uh, were perpetrated, were very common in his own day uh, through the teaching of Judaism, the Jewish teachers, uh, and saying, let's get back to uh, first basics, uh, first principles on the matter of the law. And he says, this is the way it's been understood, but I say unto you, here's the, the true matter. So he is coming not to abolish, not to say no to the law, but to take the law and to present it in the context of the new covenant. Obviously, Jesus is here stating a broad principle. It's a basic principle. I think the 
value of it is that it creates a presupposition in favor of saying that the Old Testament law has still a place in the New Covenant. There are those, <clears throat> this is where one begins to wonder who it is one's actually speaking to, but there are those, let them be anonymous for the moment, uh, who take the idea that the standard of behavior for the Christian church is to be derived solely from the New Testament. That it's only insofar as the New Testament repeats something from the Old Testament that it has a claim on the conscience and behavior of the Christian and of the church. I'm saying that Jesus is here probably going against that understanding. In saying that he is not here to abolish, but to bring to completion, to reestablish and to uh, ground fully the law, he's creating the presupposition that something will still be in force unless it's explicitly abrogated in the New Testament, unless there by some reason of good and necessary inference from New Testament principles, uh, we can say that it no longer uh, applies. In other words, Jesus here makes a very categoric statement. He often does in his teaching. He says, not one jot or tittle is going to pass away. And yet we know that his ministry brought the de demands for sacrifice to an end. We know that he will later uh, abrogate the dietary laws, the food laws. There's no problem in incorporating that into our view of what he's saying here. He is presenting a broad general principle. He is saying, start with the law, and it is in force, it is the law that is still to enlighten the practice and understanding of my followers. He didn't abrogate the law. He enforced its great ethical demands over against the, the superficial externality of traditional Jewish interpretation. He fulfilled, he did not sever his relationship with the law. The law found its goal in Christ, his teaching is the consummate expression of the law, and not basing it on Matthew 5, but on the New Testament, Jesus' life is a living out of the law. But Christ didn't just rubber stamp the law. As we read the Gospels, we find he modifies it in a number of ways. A number of ways that I think are significant. He sets himself up as the true expositor of the law. In Matthew 12, for instance, we have the incident where he was walking through the, the grain fields. His disciples became hungry and started to pick the heads of grain and eat. They, the Pharisees jumped on them. Uh, they they, they uh, said, Luke, there's what your disciples doing, breaking our understanding of the, the Sabbath law. And Jesus responds to the situation, might I even say prophetically. Uh, it's very much the, the 
in continuation of the standards of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, he denounces a strict adherence uh, to the ceremonial aspects of the law when that is not conjoined with, infused by the basic spirit in which the law was given. If you'd known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. His attitude is that law-keeping, the letter of the law, is of no value if it is not based on the right spirit in which the law was given. And remember, that spirit is expressing love and gratitude towards God the Savior. If it is not based on that and an expression of it, the law should never nullify. Law-keeping should never nullify love, gratitude towards God. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. And he says his disciples' behavior in this is such that leaves them innocent. He goes on to say, uh, in Mark's account of this, that the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. And you would have thought that the corollary of that would have been that if the Sabbath's been made for man then man should be able to decide what to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus doesn't say that. His conclusion is the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He doesn't give to individuals, to his own followers, the right to disregard the law according to their own whim or personal preference. He claims rather that he is the one who has authority over the law and that it is his emphasis on the need for conformity to the spirit and the intent of the law as much as to the letter that is to be understood. The emphasis is on back to creation. The emphasis is on can't you see the fundamental principle? Who was created for what? He's saying, think things through in the light of creation and you'll be able to understand the reason behind the Sabbath keeping. And understanding the reason behind it, you will be in a position to do it properly. The same sort of attitude can be found also in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, there's this scathing indictment of the scribes and Pharisees. But notice verse 23. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't say you shouldn't have tithed, but that letter observance of particular precepts without heart concurrence in the basic covenant attitudes of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, letter observance is worthless. 
Notice also that Jesus is there recognizing that there are weightier provisions of the law. He's recognizing that not all commandments are have the same priority. There are certain matters that are more foundational than others, which fits in with the approach I've been trying to develop in terms of the moral law representing the, the basic uh, structures and the others, not contrary to it, but not at the same level of fundamental significance. So Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, displays his authority regarding the law by correcting human abuses of it, as were prevalent in his own day, in terms of emphasizing detailed regulation, detailed observance, and not the fundamental motivation of gratitude, obligation towards God the Savior that should have, under, should have underpinned uh, the attitude towards the law. But Jesus also corrects the law. For instance, there's the dispute about divorce in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees come to him and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The Pharisees say, then why did Moses command to give a certificate and divorce her? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Now those who make the law, the Mosaic law, uh, an abiding norm have problems there. Because there's Jesus saying there's something in the Mosaic law that was granted as a, a temporary concession. If one employs that the terms that are sometimes used of norm ethics and context ethics, um, the, the, the norm ethics says how do you decide how to behave? You decide how to behave in terms of stipulated regulations and precepts. Context ethics says you decide how to behave in the light of general precepts, like love, applied in particular situations. And employing that distinction, here is a case where the Mosaic law is context ethics and not norm ethics. The Torah itself is here showing that it has been molded because of the hardness of your hearts. And that can cause difficulties to get a framework for law that allows for that. But from the point of view of the New Testament, there's no problem. Jesus is saying, I am now the source of instruction and law, and I point you back to the beginning, the creation situation. The Mosaic law is here corrected by Jesus in the light of God's original purpose, the moral law. So that when not a jot or tittle of the law is going to fall away, it's um, 
obviously expressing a basic principle that is subject to further qualification. Because here is Jesus himself explicitly saying, a judicial command regarding the regulation of divorce in the Mosaic law is something that is not permanently binding. One has to go back to the original creation intention. In this connection, it's evident that it's a misconception to say that the Christian is bound by the Mosaic law. It's not that the Mosaic law is disregarded. It's not that it's abrogated. It's that we now have a new covenant administration. We have the administration of the kingdom of God. And with the new covenant, there is a new mediator. Can I go back to the analogy I I was using in the first lecture in terms of the, the treaty obligations of the ancient world. If the king of Babylon overran your country, generally you didn't become a citizen of the king of Babylon. You remained a citizen of your own state and the prince of your state became a vassal of the king of Babylon. So that the covenant authority, the treaty authority, as it affected you, although it was the demands of the king of Babylon that you were meeting, they came to you from the lips of your own local king or prince. And that structure is preserved very largely at Sinai. Moses acts as the leader of God's people, the one who mediates the law of the great king to the people. But the Christian is not under the Mosaic covenant. The Christian is not to listen directly to Moses. It is rather that the Christian is in the new covenant. The new covenant has a new mediator. And all our obligations and relationships to God are mediated through Christ. It's not that we're without law, but that we receive the law at the hand of Christ. The Christ who came and said, I'm not here to annul it, I'm here to fulfill it, to interpret it, to reground it, to bring it onto consummation. It is the law as changed by the person and mission of Christ that comes to the Christian, to the church today. And thus we can see that Jesus sets aside, say Mark 7.19, thus he declared all foods clean, is Mark's comment on what Jesus said at that place. Jesus is the one who has authority. He has authority for the church. He has authority to determine what it is in the old covenant Uh, regulations that still apply now for those who are the new covenant people. There's a second body of New Testament evidence that we have to take into consideration and that's the teaching of Paul. (coughs) Paul had a lot to say about the law. And sometimes you can make it appear contradictory if you take what Paul says in one place 
and set it beside what he says somewhere else. Indeed, so contradictory can you make it appear that quite a number of modern discussions on Paul say that you don't have one but several Pauline doctrines of the law. The situation is not as bad as that. But we've got to proceed with care because Paul is not always using the word law in precisely the same way. I suppose one of the basic texts that uh, is familiar to us all is the one of Romans 6.14, where Paul says, You are not under law, but under grace. Paul is there making a, a very categoric statement regarding the standing of the Christian, regarding the standing of the believer. And he is doing it by means of this contrast, not under law, but under grace. He uses a similar contrast elsewhere, say in Galatians 3, verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. And so there are those on the basis of that who say, well, the Christians of faith, quite obviously. And so that faith coming as the gift of God's grace, what scope can the law possibly have in Christian living? If we're not under the law but under grace, why then go back and pay any attention to the law? Are we not going back into the bondage of a past age? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Let us keep standing firm and not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Well, that might be so. But Paul can speak just as positively about the law. He meets the objection. Do we nullify the law through faith? Not at all. We establish the law. Paul claims not only that the Christian is not under law, but he also claims the gospel message establishes the law. And that is very much a reflection of our Lord's own stance on the matter. The law comes from God. It cannot be dismissed. Paul in Romans will say the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Indeed, in Romans 7.14, Paul accords to the law what was probably the highest epithet he could accord to anything. He calls it spiritual. He couldn't go much further. I suppose the only other word that would be on it would be divine. But he's saying that the law is spiritual. That is, he is associating it with the Holy Spirit. Spirit-given, spirit-inspired. So the law wasn't inherently wrong or misconceived. It was weak through the flesh. And the history of Israel is a history of failure to keep the law. Now I'm sure it's evident by this time that Paul's using law in a number of distinct senses. It was commonplace by the New Testament time for law to be used at one level uh, simply to refer to the five books of Moses. The law and the prophets is a standard designation of the Old Testament scriptures. They couldn't call them the Old Testament scriptures because there wasn't a New Testament just then. Uh, 
So they had to have something to call them, and they called it the Law and the Prophets. Sometimes the Law will stand for the whole of the Old Testament. Those uses are easily identified. But there are other places where Law stands for the Mosaic institutions as a whole. And others where the focus of Paul's thinking is on the the principle of law rather than the Mosaic order. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the way he went about evangelizing. He says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 and 21. Wow, he's ringing the changes there on under the law and without law and under law. He's saying, I became as under the law. He's obviously not using that in the Romans 6 sense. In Romans 6, under the law is under the dominion of sin. Under the law is something that is quite in contrast to being under grace. Paul is there using under law to refer to the state of the Jews uh, who were still observing the Mosaic institutions, those who were still under the old covenant. They hadn't come to faith in Christ They didn't see what changes our Lord's life and work and ministry had made by introducing the new covenant. And so when Paul says, I became as under the law, he says, I lived as someone who was going to observe the the rites and ceremonies of the Mosaic covenant. Although I'm not under that covenant, these were things that were indifferent to me. These are things that I no longer felt obligated to obey as before God. But by condescension, when dealing with the Jews, I took up their lifestyle. That I might win those who are under the law. Those who are without law are those who were living, the Gentiles, apart from the Mosaic law. But Paul is very careful to show that he's not absolutely without law. I am still, he says, not without the law of God. I'm under the law of God, under the law of Christ. I find it can be understood in terms of the basic covenant perception. Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, is not just Jesus the Saviour, He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the anointed Messiah, the anointed King. Lord, the one who has the right to demand the obedience of his covenant people. And Paul is saying, I am under the the law of Christ. I am enlawed to Christ. I recognize his authority I recognize that he is the one who has the right to structure my living. And that was what was demanded by Jesus himself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. The Apostle John himself shows his appreciation of this principle. 1 John chapter 2, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. And later on in the same epistle, chapter 5, verse 3, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Commandments of Jesus, the commandments of God, what is being referred to? Well, it's certainly this is being referred to, the moral law. It is the case that uh, what is being required by the mediator of the new covenant is that his people live in accordance with the abiding principles of the law, which he came not to abrogate, but to fulfill. And that's also found elsewhere. The New Testament church enters into the privileges, the spiritual privileges, of Old Testament Israel. Not that Israel's thereby disinherited, They too may enter into the privileges that are in Christ if they recognize him and come to faith. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise, and that applies without distinction of race or social status or whatever. It is there presented before each and every individual. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's offspring. But as Peter emphasizes, the church is now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What are these? These are all the terms, most of them taken back from Exodus 19. The terms that Moses used to indicate the purpose that God had at the end of the covenant process salvation, obligation, and then entry into enjoyment of the privilege and status of the blessing given by the overlord. Peter says that's what the church now is. Royal priesthood, holy nation, people of God's own possession. And they too, we too, have to be subservient to God's demands for our living. And so the apostles, quite naturally, without any sense of artificiality, take the principles of the law and use them as the standard of Christian conduct. You see that, say, in Romans 13, where Paul, verse 8, says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he gives content to that for this You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Paul is dealing with the question, what is appropriate Christian behavior? How should the Christian live? And he cites 
four of the precepts of the Decalogue as being relevant to answering that question, how the Christian should live. It's in terms of love, yes. But love is the fulfillment of the law. The precepts of the moral law form the basis of the action to which love impels. And that can be seen time and again in the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists those who are not to inherit the kingdom of God. And going through the list, you can relate it to breach those who have breached various of the commandments. Uh, the same thing again could be seen, say, in Second Timothy 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. In the well-known words, all scripture is inspired by God. And so often we stop there. Well, I don't know if you stop there down here, but uh, north of the border, preachers frequently stop there because they want to prove the inspiration of Scripture. But Paul didn't. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How is the Christian to live? What is the content of vital Christian living? It is derived from Scripture, and that Scripture is the Old Testament Scriptures, because that was what was available at that stage. And they are there for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the New Testament believer may be equipped for every good work. When Paul had to deal with a distressing case of immorality in Corinth and he was urging the Corinthians to remove the, the immoral man from among them in 1 Corinthians 5 it was the standard of the Mosaic law that was being invoked but not because of Moses but because of Christ the standards the moral standards of God's law remain as those the church is still to aim at the situations changed because breaches, adultery and breaches of the, the, the um, marriage laws are no longer subject to the sanctions of the state, something we'll get on to uh, this afternoon, perhaps a bit more. It's within the Christian community these standards are being upheld there in Corinth, and the sanction, the church sanction, is that of excommunication. Separate that one from among you. Put that one aside. Uh, separation with a purpose that he may be reclaimed, yes. But it's the, the, the Christian church is thinking through the action that's appropriate under the new covenant, not in terms of a different set of moral standards, but in terms of the same set worked out more fully. But, while we can follow that through fairly easily at the level of the moral law, we have to remember that the law also contained many other things besides. And Paul's use of the other parts of the law extends in ways we might not expect. He doesn't just press home or use 
in a New Testament Christian context the laws that we would call moral laws. Remember in the discussion that he had with the Corinthians again uh, about his Paul's right uh, to, if he wished, take a wife with them uh, and to uh, be supported by those to whom he was ministering. Uh, He argues in there that uh, the law, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And he says God is not concerned about oxen, is he? 1 Corinthians 9.9. Sorry to have kept you waiting for that reference, but I'd missed it out in my notes. I had to look it up just now myself. In 1 Corinthians 9.9, Paul is, is arguing this situation through. He argues it, first of all, at the level of, of common sense, natural justice. If someone serves a soldier, serves as a soldier, he expects to be paid by the general commanding the army. If someone plants a vineyard, he expects to eat its fruit. And he then says, but I'm not just talking at the level of human judgment. That's what the law says. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. If one of my students had come to me and said, uh, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, means ministers should be paid by their congregations. I, I must confess that not having, if I hadn't been familiar with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I'd have said, it's a very fanciful way of interpreting scripture. And this raises for us the relevance of the detailed prescriptions of the Mosaic law to the church today. Paul is quite happy. Paul will urge, you shall not muzzle the ox as something that can throw light on Christian behavior, what should be happening within the church. How is he doing it? What is going on? Well, we've seen, I've mentioned at any rate, that much of the Mosaic law deals with sacrifice and the the institutions regarding the priesthood. And we can see fairly readily how they are done away with in Christ. It's often presented that they culminate in the once-for-all sacrifice of the final priest, our Lord himself. But perhaps that's not doing justice to all the New Testament evidence. Although they culminate, there is a sense in which the New Testament will still talk about other priests and other sacrifices after Christ. That's testing your knowledge of the New Testament when I say that. But I've mentioned one already. Paul, Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, will say to the believers, you are a royal priesthood. Although priesthood has come to, in some sense, its culmination in Christ, it still goes on. And Hebrews 13, 15, 16, verses 15 and 16, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. 
Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Even in the the, the ceremonial law, the Old Testament reality comes through to Christ, is taken up and viewed by the apostles in the light of all that has happened in Christ, and thus its interpretation and focus is found for the New Testament church. Even in Hebrews, which is so very much concerned with the finality of our Lord's sacrifice, takes, says sacrifice still has got, when viewed in Christ and after his completed work, has still got a, a claim and relevance in the New Testament church. And I think it's the same way that we have to look at the, the detailed prescriptions. We have to look at them and I'm talking we, the Christian church, has to look at them in the light of Christ. Looking at the detailed prescriptions in the light of Christ means that we don't see ourselves tied down uh, to a, a literal observance of many of the details. It enables us to ask what principle is being expressed in this law and how should I then live by it? Can I take some time perhaps to work that out in terms of some practical examples? Let's look for instance at Deuteronomy 22 verses 1 to 12. Quite a long section. If you've got one of those Bibles that puts in (coughs) titles to paragraphs you'll probably find it's got a title rather like Miscellaneous Regulations or Various Precepts. Various Laws, it suggests in the SNIV edition that's here. I'm reading the the New American Standard Bible, but it's got a translation here I don't particularly like. Uh, You shall not see your countryman's ox. It's literally your brother's, so if you let me read it as brother's. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your brother looks for it. Then you shall return it to him. And thus you shall do with his donkey. You shall do the same with his garment. And you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost and you found. You're not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your your, um, brother's donkey or his ox fallen down in the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him raise them up. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, in order that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring blood guilt on your house, if anyone falls from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, 
lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard become defiled. You shall not plough with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. (laughs) What has that to do with the Christian church? It's far from straightforward to determine how we should read passages such as that. Different interpreters approach the matter in different ways. Some emphasize the practical nature of the laws God imposed. I've seen someone who looks at verses 6 and 7 there and says, isn't that a fine example of ecological interest? In our modern green situation, uh, the the mother bird is let go free so that uh, she can lay another uh, clutch of eggs and the species isn't threatened. And again, there's verse 8. Isn't that a fine practical instance of how to translate you shall not kill and put it into effect? In lands where roofs were flat, because there wasn't that much rain to worry about, they were often used for entertaining, even sleeping in hot weather. And it was a very sensible thing to have a parapet round the edge to prevent someone falling off, either in their sleep or perhaps after entertaining that had gone too far. (laughs) You can see there perhaps a sort of forerunner of modern building regulations. And yet again in verse 11 you'll find there those who talk about the uncomfortable nature of garments mixed of wool and linen in hot climates. Apparently it's a mixture that creates a lot of static electricity and the garment will then cling very clammily to one's body. And then there's verse 12, this unfortunate picture of the big bulky ox and the smaller weaker donkey, both linked lopsidedly to the one yoke as you try to pull the plough. A a clear case of animal welfare and the Royal Society's constitution from that. And it's often the case. You can look at parts of the Old Testament law and say, oh, how practical, how caring, how hygienic. But it doesn't work for them all. And somehow you don't seem to have got to the root of the matter. Some others of the restrictions were of a religious nature. There were specifically practices that were, or injunctions that were aimed at forbidding the practices that the Canaanites were engaged in. That certainly seems to to lie behind verse 3 there, uh, where it's, no, I'm sorry, verse 5 it is, uh, said to be an abomination to the Lord. That's uh, religious vocabulary. That's vocabulary that scripture uses uh, to refer to um, religious deviation. And it may very well be that Um, these were practices connected with the Canaanite cult where there was a lot of religious prostitution involved. It may be you can find an Egyptian practice in the background of verse 9. Many of the the pictures from Egypt, uh, the wall paintings, 
He shows um, orchards with other crops growing there. And that may very well have been something to do with avoiding Egyptian practices. And that might account even for verse 11. It's a very unusual word that's used there for this uh, mixed cloth. It looks like a word of Egyptian origin. We're not quite sure what the significance in that case would be. But again, some of these verses you can perhaps understand against don't assimilate to the religious practices of the heathen. And others, yet again, you might say, well, it's a, the command is concerned with recognizing the sovereignty of God the Creator. And that works particularly well for verses 9 to 11. In creation, God separated. God created after its kind, laid down the divisions of his creation. And here are God's special people, God's chosen people, being told to observe the distinctions that God had put in place. And that certainly seems to be going along sound lines, a good theology. But it doesn't cover everything. How do you get tassels in the four corners of your cloak on the basis of creation? And what's more, it will provide us with a problem if we're saying that this is simply based on an acknowledgement of God the Creator, then there's no immediate or obvious reason why it shouldn't still apply. If, if this injunction of, say, not plowing with an ox and a donkey together or not growing hybrids is something that's based on respecting creation simply, then what do we do when we plant our gardens with a variety of crops? And why don't we have tassels on the edges of our coats? Although you can get somewhere by saying how sensible or how to avoid another religion or how to respect creation, they don't all hold all the time. And we seem to get back to miscellaneous laws again. But if we stand back a little, if we look at where it falls in the progress of God's revelation, we're in, Deut we're in Deuteronomy, we're in Moses' farewell speech to the people, they're about to enter the promised land, Moses is reminding them of how they are to conduct themselves in the promised land, these are instructions for the people in the land, and there's a terrific emphasis in Scripture, uh, and particularly in Deuteronomy, that these are things in the land, that these are things that are to characterize God's chosen people. They are set up so that Israel would be seen as a people set apart, a people who are not just set apart but kept apart because the purpose behind God's choosing Israel was so that the line of promise would be preserved until Christ came. Not just that they would be a people arbitrarily set apart, but so that the, the line of promise, the seed that would come through Abraham, through uh, the patriarchs, through David, would in the fullness of time come through God's people. And if we read Deuteronomy in those terms, if we read it in terms of God's particular requirements 
for the people. They've been delivered from Egypt, separated out to perform a very particular role. Moses as the covenant mediator, setting before them the requirements of their covenant king so that they might fulfill that particular role. Then we can begin to see how it applies to us. We see, first of all, that God, through Moses, claimed the right to order his people's lives in great detail. Their confession that Yahweh is God, the Lord is God, is not to be just a general acknowledgement. Their Savior King claimed them all the time and in every way. Whether it was what they wore, or how they farmed, or whatever sort of house they built for themselves, it all had to be done acknowledging him. Whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all for his glory. And we're actually told elsewhere, in Numbers 15, why they had tassels on the corners of their garments. You will have tassels to look at, so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them. And not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. You will look at them and remember to obey all my commands. They were badges given to them as symbols to remind them to obey their covenant king. Israel at Sinai, and subsequently, but Israel at Sinai were a people who had still a lot to learn. There was much that they couldn't then know because Jesus Christ hadn't yet come. The fullness of God's revelation was still awaited. They were being taught by shadows and by illustrations. They were, as Paul puts it, God's underage children, still minors, being taught elementary principles, being educated by simple devices. They were still learning their ABC, not able to move forward with confidence as mature as grown up. And that's the way to view much of the law that God gave them. He wanted them to be different, not just in big things, but throughout their lives acknowledging him. To be different, not just in basic ethical principles, he could have stopped with the Ten Commandments. He wanted them rather to show a commitment to him that stretched down to every detail of their living. You are to be different. You are to be holy. You are to be separate and obviously my people. Some of his regulations based no doubt on common sense. Others so that they didn't copy the practices of the heathen. Others, no doubt, to respect God's creation. Others, just a positive device to cause them to remember. We're not always able to be 100% sure in each and every one what the particular impact would have been because we don't have all the background information. But there was the general and basic sense he was saying to them, be my people through and through. You are mine. I am going to control your lives. I want you to live in a way that avoids dangers and respects my way of looking at things. Be holy because I am holy. Now how do we apply that? 
Well, Paul, one place says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. And there are those who say, well, perhaps it's the same sort of argument. If these things were for the childhood of God's people, the time for them's passed, and they're no longer relevant. If you see a grown man walking around clutching a, a teddy bear, you begin to wonder if there's some developmental abnormality. And on the same basis, they say, if you see the church going around with four tassels on the corners of its garment, there's something not quite right there. Well, yes, that's true. But saying there is no relevance is going too far. Because Peter's emphasizing, as we saw, the church inherits the rights and privileges of Israel. The church is the chosen people, the holy nation. They are a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's no longer the church underage. No longer the church as a minor. But that doesn't mean that the church is to disregard the training it received as a minor. It's the same with the parent-child relationship. It can hardly be said that when a parent is teaching a child, it's law in the sense of state law that's used. Uh, there are injunctions, there are exhortations towards proper conduct. But parents don't make up rules for children uh, that are totally arbitrary. Generally, parents give injunctions and exhortations and advice that will serve their children in good stead, educate them in the way that they will be able to go on and live sensibly once they are of age. Not that they will put them behind them completely, but that they will be able to, to move on from there when they grow up. They will no longer then, when they're grown up, be under the detailed injunctions of their parents, but their upbringing will be a lifelong asset. So what is said and done may at first be presented in a childish way. Tassels on your garments. But there's a basic truth involved. You don't say to children, wash your hands before you eat, simply to avoid the soup becoming purple with the paint that they've just been painting with. You've got in mind also things like food poisoning. You've got in mind various more fundamental principles. And that's what God was teaching. They're not arbitrary commands. They're sensible but elementary. And they bring within their scope the people of God in every age. And so just as the church has taken over the status and standing of the Old Testament church, so too as God's holy people, we've to reckon with a God who's interested in every aspect of our living and the God who wants us to acknowledge him in all the details of our lives. Many of the elementary laws are done away with. We can see that most clearly perhaps in the food laws. Christ has made all clean. You may eat this and not that, that's gone. But it was teaching a fundamental principle, the requirement to be different the requirement to imitate God. And so we have to look at each of those laws and say, how does that apply to the church that is mature? 
not the church that is underage. We're no longer bound by a maze of detailed and particular restrictions and regulations. But we're required to order our lives before him. Indeed, the principle in, say, the first part of chapter 22 there, about the animal that's found wandering. And it's said in that um, chapter that... If I can get back to where it is in my notes. It's said in that chapter, you shall not... If when you see your brother's ox or his sheep straying and pay no attention, you shall not pay no, any attention to them. The, the phrase is literally, don't hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. That's really the parable of the Good Samaritan in ancient disguise. You, you see another in need. You see a situation. Even sometimes he says he's talking about the brother whom you don't know. But you recognize that it's within the community. You go to help. Verse 8 means uh, what I am doing has got an implication for others. The the parapet round the roof. And even where my responsibility is indirect. I may build the house and there may be no accident in the house roof all my days. But then the next generation it may be that someone uh, would be in danger of falling off. I as the builder have got a responsibility even in situations where I'm not going to be directly involved, to make sure things are safe. And then verses 9 to 11 bring before us very clearly that the separation principle that Paul emphasizes so much, do not be unequally yoked. The Old Testament's talking in terms of the, the, the big ox and the little donkey. Paul's using the same language probably referring to the same law in terms of the behavior of Christians. Mixed marriages, not across races, that's not what Paul's concerned with, but across the religious divide. Mixed relationships. He, the Old Testament church was being taught about these things in terms of the way they used the, the animals they worked with every day. Uh, but Paul's saying, yes, okay, but the general principle is how the Christian conducts his life and the relationship he has with those around. Oh, yes, the the Old Testament law could become very artificial. People could get so so satisfied by observing the details that they lost sight of the general principles. The details in large measure are taken away as regulations for us. And the challenge is to focus on the principles to see how we're working out the principles in our everyday living. We're not to look back at the Old Testament law with a sort of air of 20th century superiority and say, oh, how elementary, how basic, how childish. We've got, we're being challenged. Have we, have we got the insight to see the the basic principles and apply them? Are we acting as those who've got a concern to be obviously the people of God today? The belief patterns of our day encourage the view that one opinion is just as valid as another. We live in a pluralistic society. We have to tolerate other standards, other modes of living. The idea that there are absolute principles is one that's decried. But we have basic principles. 
We have to argue through what they are. Perhaps it's not the case that all these detailed injunctions are clear. I'm by no means saying that. But this is a matter that's not peripheral. It's the essence of being God's holy people in a sinful world. It's what a commitment to Jesus involves now. In ancient times, it wasn't just enough to say, well, I'll go along with Israel to get out of the slavery of Egypt. I'll accompany them through the Red Sea when God opens up this marvelous channel for escape. It wasn't just enough to do that. They had to go on living lives that were consciously dedicated to him. And that's what the New Testament wants. A people who will show forth his praises in the detail of our living. Not by artificial constraint. Not by having a rule book that you look up all the time. But knowing what God is like. Serving him in the strength of his spirit. And desiring to show that being saved and acknowledging Jesus as Lord is something that affects every aspect of our living and is lived out in a way that seeks to show him forth in a witness in this world.